You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not so recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. What was it that made me spontaneously weep while I happened to pull out a stack of sweaters in preparation for winter in Montreal? The smallest wisp of white fur. Fur that happened to belong to my very beloved Ben, a white, long-haired Norwegian forest cat. He died in August 2019 of, well, old age. He was 20. He fought long and hard to stay with me, and I loved him for being as stubborn and ornery and proud and as highly affectionate and noble as he was. He was beautiful, and he knew it, and he commanded my admiration and that of others. When I realized he was dying, it was just a few short months after my father had died and my mother and other beloved cat Leo had already passed away, I felt this internal upheaval that was akin to an emotional earthquake. I clutched him close to my chest, and as he slowly drifted away from me, I whispered to him over and over and over the promise that I would carry him with me forever. And not just him, but the life with my parents the home and context and love we had shared together. So, there I was, holding this wisp of white fur that had somehow been preserved in my stack of winter sweaters. I buckled under with the force of the reminder, sprawled across the floor, clutching the sweaters and weeping openly. This is actually what it means to be haunted or at least one version of it. And so, yes, my dear listeners, this is clearly my Halloween episode. We often associate haunting with ghosts or haunted houses, perhaps something of a more sinister order. But there are several meanings attached to this word, and one of these implies a memory that lingers. Something that is not easily forgotten, or something that has been repressed and returns and returns demanding our attention. Sometimes a memory has been repressed because, at times, it's too painful to remember. At other times, because it would otherwise reveal something that's truly too horrifying to gaze upon directly. That is, because it would demand acknowledgement and accountability. Haunting serves to undermine some of the pleasant narratives that we'd like to hold up as truth, shedding light on the seamy underbellies of those apparently pleasant narratives. Unsolved murder mysteries are one form of these. See as an example, episode 6 of season 2 about Cold Case North. Still, sometimes what haunts us isn't disturbing, but rather beautiful or sad, and we therefore want to be haunted. Think, for example, of the classic Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, 
and for that matter, Kate Bush's fantastic interpretation of the tormented cry of Heathcliff, one of the main characters, for his beloved Kathy to come home and haunt him. I have links in my show notes for both of these references. Ultimately, haunting is consistently about the past and how it impinges on the present moment. It's about a relationship, an orientation between the person being haunted and that past, sometimes in pain, in anguish, longing, disgust, repulsion, or sheer terror. So for this episode on Halloween and haunting, I've selected my top five books or stories that feature haunting, or have quite simply haunted me, and in some pretty wide-ranging ways. Now, I know I could step outside of literature in Canada and select some pretty famous examples, like my personal favorite, Frankenstein, by the British author Mary Shelley, another classic that I highly recommend, uh, A Rose for Emily, by American writer William Faulkner. But there are some pretty spectacular examples in Canada, too, including, for example, Kevin Lambert's You Will Love What You've Killed, which I covered in last year's Halloween episode. That was episode 19 of season two. So I won't include him today, nor will I include another book I would think of in this category, Madeleine Tian's Do Not Say We Have Nothing, which I covered in episode three of season one. So... Let's get to it and allow me my countdown of my top five books in Canada that are, well, haunting. So, in this countdown, book number five is Sherry Dimeline's The Marrow Thieves. I've been meaning to talk about this book of young adult fiction by Dimeline from the Georgian Bay Mitzi Nation for some time. Published by Dancing Cat Books, The Marrow Thieves is disturbing and sharp. Told from the point of view of Frenchie, a 15-year-old indigenous boy, the narrative is set in a dystopian future when global warming has irrevocably damaged our planet. Water levels have risen, and land masses have been submerged in water. Fresh water itself has become scarce. Frenchie observes, for example, that the Great Lakes of Ontario, incidentally the largest bodies of fresh water on Earth, were, quote, gray and thick like porridge. The narrative follows the journey of Frenchie and a group of other indigenous persons who are the only ones left who have the power and ability to dream. Their dreams, it's noted, are formed in their bones, quote, that's where they live, in that marrow, end quote. The Canadian government has thus set in motion a plan whereby they engage recruiters, that is, the marrow thieves of the said title, to pursue Indigenous persons who are valuable for their bone marrow. Their marrow is seen as essential to finding treatment and potential cures for those who have lost that ability to dream, who are dreamless, distressed, and fending off the plague of madness that threatens them. You can already imagine, I'm sure, how the recruiters harvest the marrow, and how those Indigenous persons who are captured are treated. It doesn't take much of a stretch to understand how Dimeline is also referring to the past, and the very recent past too, related to Indigenous residential schools in Canada, and for that matter, elsewhere, and translating that into a future moment. 
the characters even so speak of that experience in the past. Quote, we suffered there. We almost lost our languages. Many lost their innocence, their laughter, their lives. But we got through it, and the schools were shut down. End quote. Stories and language are essential to the process of getting through it. So the book is haunting in several ways, asking readers to be accountable to a past that was horrific and that demands acknowledgement in the present moment, as it also gestures toward future environmental catastrophes that we, as readers, need to look full in the face. It also ultimately reveals how the power of storytelling and connection are key to Indigenous survival. The fourth book on my list is similar to my fifth choice in that it's also a future dystopian novel, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, published in 1985. Now, many of you will already know this book, if not from the novel itself, then probably from the series currently being offered on Netflix. That is, the first series follows the novel, after which time it departs from the novel's trajectory. And by the way, the first series is superb. I already know the plot line, and I was still sitting on the edge of my sofa, completely riveted. Like Demoline's The Marrow Thieves, Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale is set in a disturbing future in New England, when a Christian fundamentalist regime in the former United States assumes power, renames the country the Republic of Gilead, and addresses a different kind of environmental crisis that has resulted in human infertility, with the exception of a select few. Well, one of those select few is Offred. The novel is told from the point of view of Offred, one of the handmaids of the commanders of this new republic, whose own wife, Serena Joy, is, or perhaps he himself, infertile. Offred compares her present life in the Republic with a life she once had, and which she thinks about with both sadness and as a way of retaining her sanity in the present moment. She had attended university and worked in a library, was married, had a daughter. The rights she had come to enjoy, to be able to read, to have her own bank account, to work, these were stripped away as she was separated from her husband Luke and her daughter, and then her sole purpose was to bear a child to the commander to whom she is assigned. So, Offred is haunted in her current life by her past happiness, from which she had been mercilessly wrenched. And we as viewers or readers should be haunted by the latent and sinister possibilities in our current cultural and political climate from which the novel warns a Republic of Gilead could spring. Perhaps this book's most haunting feature is that it is more timely now than it was when it was first published in 1985. My third recommendation, Monkey Beach, by the Heisel-Heltzik writer Eden Robinson. It may be third in this list in terms of its ability to haunt, but it's otherwise one of my all-time favorite novels. Eden Robinson is now renowned for her trickster series of books. Again, there'll be a link in my show notes. However, I'm going to do an entire episode on the novel Monkey Beach in the next season because I love it that much. 
And yes, there is already a movie that's been made about this book. Today I'll frame it in terms of its otherwise otherworldly and spiritual facets in which the main character and one of the narrators, Lisa Marie, is immersed. And not by choice she would have us know. Lisa Marie, who is Heisla, is confronted by these troubling supernatural figures and omens that she's not quite sure how to decipher, in part because of how removed she's become through colonial processes from her own indigenous ways of knowing and understanding, and in part because of the layers of trauma that have affected her indigenous community through the residential school system. One of these benevolent presences is her grandmother, who had been trying to teach Lisa Maria about traditional Heisla practices and rituals. The figures and omens Lisa Marie sees also remind us about how Indigenous knowledges have been repressed historically, and why Lisa is so haunted. In the main plot of this novel, Lisa Marie's brother, Jimmy, disappears at sea along with her uncle. The readers learn about the tensions that were already fulminating below the surface between Jimmy and their uncle before they left for a fishing trip, which heightens the disturbing premonitions that Lisa experiences about what may have happened to her brother. By midway through the novel, she decides to set off on her own on a journey in search of her brother through the Douglas Channel, heading directly for Monkey Beach, renowned for Sasquatch sightings. While Lisa is haunted by otherworldly figures throughout the book, they also orient her spiritually. My fourth recommendation in the countdown isn't actually a book. It's a story by East Coast writer Alistair MacLeod. At long last, I hear some of you saying because it's true. I've not yet properly addressed East Coast writers in my episodes. Aside from a quick takeaway for Megan Gale Coles' small game hunting at the local Cowards Gun Club in episode two of season one, I haven't really allotted considerable time yet to East Coast writers although I'm about to remedy this very soon, in my very next episode, in fact. For now, allow me to say that Alistair MacLeod was a Saskatchewan-born writer, novelist, and academic who focused on Cape Breton Island. His parents were from the island, and so he returned there when he was a boy. And therefore, the beauty of the place and the lives of those who inhabit it are the focus of his narratives. Although No Great Mischief, that's the novel that won the highly coveted International Impact Dublin Literary Award, and by the way, MacLeod was the first Canadian writer ever to win that prize, I still love The Boat over No Great Mischief. The Boat is essentially a story that inaugurated MacLeod's literary career in 1968. It opens as a man wakes excruciatingly early in the morning and mistakenly thinks he's still a young boy, ready to help his father on the boat. A moment that we are given to understand happens repeatedly, virtually every morning, although he no longer lives with his parents. The boat was his family's livelihood and central preoccupation when he was young. But that's not the reason he wakes even decades later after he's left his family behind in their small fishing village for a life as a professor elsewhere. By a series of marked contrasts between images in the present moment and the past, cigarettes for example, MacLeod allows us to see how and why our narrator is haunted, traumatized really, 
by a past from which he never feels quite free. This is a story that, when I taught it for the first time, I wept openly in front of my students. It's a disquieting but exquisite rendering of how the past often lurks below the surface of daily life, informing even present-day moments and troubling temporal distinctions. Like Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, in some ways that past was far happier than what the present offers. But the past is a landscape that is no longer accessible to either of these protagonists. And it's that loss that haunts them. And the last story on the list for today's episode, Shawnee Mutu, a Trinidadian-Canadian writer and poet whom I've actually interviewed before for this podcast. Alongside Monkey Beach, Mutu's novel Serious Blooms at Night, published in 1996 by Penguin Random House, has to be one of the most perfect novels ever written. Why has no one made a movie about this one yet? The main character of the frame narrative, a caregiver at the nursing home Paradise Alms House in Lantana Camara, which is a presumably fictional representation of Trinidad, unravels over time the story of an elderly female resident there, Malaram Chandan, going back several generations in time to discover the horrific and disturbing events that unfolded around her and the violences to which she was subjected. This is one of those moments when the haunting involves a past one does not want to look at directly because it's thoroughly horrifying. Gazing upon the horror of it, however, compels a kind of justice, elicits compassion for those implicated in the narrative. The novel teaches us, among other things, why being haunted is essential to developing and retaining our humanity and why haunting and being haunted is and should be fundamentally desirable. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. Since I'm speaking about pasts that haunt us, I feel I should select a novel, and one I do love, that corresponds to this idea. So I'm going to pick for today's episode the novel All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves. I was never an ardent fan of a complicated kindness. It just didn't compel me. But All My Puny Sorrows is incredible. And I do want to return to do a full episode on this novel at a later date. I love it because it's this compelling narrative that balances compassion against cruelty, tenderness against a searing rage, driven forward by the question of what our responsibility to others is and how we express love toward those to whom we are closest, agonizing over what accountability and responsibility might look like when it's at odds with the rest of the world. Well, that's it for today's episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Please join me on my next episode when I speak about Amy Sparaway's Crow. Thanks, as always, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.